we have a great subscription offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our digital edition for 12 months for just $24.99. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your inbox for less than $4.20 an issue. Only $24.99 for a full year. So don't wait. To subscribe, go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. Hi, I'm Angela Heathcote and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. This episode, I'm talking to Fred Watson. Fred is Australia's astronomer at large. He's going to tell us exactly how he ended up with a job title that almost sounds made up. He's going to share his view on the massive topic of light pollution and the loss of our night sky. So I'm really excited to be talking to Fred today on this episode of Talking Australia. Now for today's episode of Talking Australia, I'm at Fred Watson's house in Terry Hills. So if you hear a cat meowing or a few chickens, don't worry. It's all good. Fred Watson, thank you so much for being with me today. It's a great pleasure, as always. <laughs> Perfect. So I really, really wanted to chat to you today about a bunch of different things, but what I've recently been reading a lot about is dark skies, urban night sky parks, um, dark sky tourism, and I'm wondering where that all started and what are all these buzzwords and things like that. So I guess, can you take me back to the idea of a dark sky park? What, what is that? Where did, where did that concept begin? It, it actually came out of uh, the United States, and the story does go back very much to an astronomical background. Uh, so in the 80s, uh, astronomers in America uh, were getting very concerned about the loss of the night sky. Um, the, um, sorry about the chook. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in the 1980s, uh, Americans were getting very concerned about the loss of the night sky because of urban light pollution. Many uh, American observatories are not very far from cities uh, because it turns out that that's where the atmospheric, you know, the atmospheric conditions are good for building telescopes. So uh, an organisation grew up actually based in Tucson in Arizona, which is very close to the American National Observatory uh, at a place called Kitt Peak. And a group of people led by, um, there's a guy called uh, Dr. Garstang, I can't remember his first name, and Dave Crawford. They were the founders of what became the International Dark Sky Association. And they became an, advers- an advocacy group, principally for astronomers to start with. But then, of course, it grew uh, into a realisation that uh, wildlife and indeed ourselves lose something if we can't see the night sky. And in fact, um, wildlife often loses their lives because their migrating birds are, uh, are fooled by cities and things of that sort. So the, the organisation's remit grew. Um, and one of the ways that it was seen that you could draw attention to this and indeed draw attention to what a pristine night sky looks like is to invent a concept called dark sky places, uh, which they did. And um, they had several different layers depending on the, on the kind of uh, territory that you're talking about. So um, dark sky reserves are very large areas, uh, you know, almost national-sized or certainly at least county-sized areas. And, and the first one was in this place in Arizona. Uh, that's right, yes. Uh, I think the first reserves might have been in 
in I know they probably were in the United States. The uh, one of the biggest ones is in Namibia, actually in South Africa, in Southern Africa. Uh, but dark sky parks are smaller areas and often a based around national parks and that's what happened here in Australia because uh, we saw an opening for uh, a possible dark sky park in Australia because the uh, National Observatory, uh, which I was then astronomer in charge of, the Australian Astronomical Observatory, uh, is on a mountaintop called Siding Spring which is in the Warrumbungal mountain range and it's right next door to the Warrumbungal National Park and so uh, back in 2016, we set up the mechanisms and the paperwork. Yeah, what what would, what does that process look like? How do you get <laughs> approval? Yeah, it's long. Um, so yeah, 112 pages was the document that oh, was submitted. Wow. Um, and what it's got to show is. Um, things like, do you have any sort of legislative protection for the night skies there? Did we? Uh, indeed we did, because the observatory itself has uh, legislative protection. It was then out to a radius of 100 kilometres from the observatory. It's now 200 kilometres. It's covered by uh, planning uh, and environmental regulations, actually administered by uh, the New South Wales uh, Department of Planning and Environment. So that was in place, that was the easy one. But then you've got to do an inventory of all the lights. If there are lights in the park, uh, you need an inventory of them to show that they are properly shielded and they're not sending light into the sky. And of course there are lights because there's a visitor centre there, there's um, toilet facilities and things of that sort. All of that stuff we had to take into account. <laughs> uh, we One of the things we run into was there's a there's a Telstra telephone box in the National Park um, which has an orange roof which is translucent and so that fell foul oh of the um, the regulations but um, we we got permission from Telstra to paint it uh, with engine paint uh, so there's this so black Telstra was supportive. yeah That's they were absolutely yeah Telstra came to the party yeah said do what you like with it if you because we needed to make it opaque so dark sky parks started in the Warren Bungles in Australia. They did, yes, that's right. And there are now, there's at least one more. Um, I've, you know, I'm not really up to speed now on where we're going with this because other people have taken the rein since I stopped being astronomer in charge at Siding Spring, which I'm delighted about. You know, it means that there's, uh, there's, a, there's a whole a cohort of people who are waving the flag for dark skies and pushing for dark sky parks mm. and reserves and things of that sort. Okay, so I know there's dark sky parks but obviously there are, or from my understanding, there are different variations of dark sky parks, especially with, uh, I mean, you can put them in all different areas. Can you kind of go into and explain mm. that? Sure, yeah. So uh, as I said before, a reserve is a very large area. A park is, you know, something like a national park. But the International Dark Sky Association also recognised uh, communities um, with a, a dark sky community um, level. And that is... Communities that might not be pristine in the quality of the night skies, but which have a strong emphasis on good lighting and minimising light pollution. Uh, so dark sky communities are probably mostly small towns, maybe sometimes near a national park or something like that. Uh, we would like to see the, the town of Coonabarabran, which is right next door to the Warrumbungle National Park, recognised as a dark sky community, for example. Uh, that's something that the, the town itself will have to, you know, will have to um, take the lead on. Uh, but that's a, that's a fairly well-established uh, tier of the 
dark sky movement, the dark sky communities. But what is new is the idea of an urban dark sky park where you've got something maybe in the centre of a city which is an enclave of slightly you know, lower light pollution. And so there is a push on at the moment, um, being led by my partner Marnie, uh, which is to get the, um, the, the, the Palm Beach headland recognised as Australia's first urban dark sky park, maybe even the world's first urban dark sky park, because mm. I don't think there are any yet. I find the idea of an urban night sky park really interesting. Um, I originally grew up in, on the central coast and I used to always be able to see the stars. And then I moved to inner West Sydney maybe yeah. two years ago. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like even walking home now, I don't look up even though on the central coast when I'd walk home at night, I would. So I'm wondering, do you think people in urban environments are, are like very disconnected from the night sky? Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the problems with, um, you know, with, with light pollution. Uh, it has disconnected us from, uh, from the night sky in a way that I think is detrimental to our well-being because, you know, when you, you, there, there are many reasons why we don't like light pollution and, and health is one of them, uh, physical health. But I think... You know, 200 years ago, um, we, weren't, we weren't blitzed by the same amount of artificial light as we are now. And, and of course, a lot of leisure pollutes were, sorry, a lot of leisure pursuits were carried on outside uh, rather than indoors because that was the entertainment for the night, was watching the stars. Um, we, we have lost that connection, I think. Uh, and I, I think that's bad for our well-being. I think connectedness with something much bigger than ourselves, um, you know, even the moon at uh, 380,000 kilometres away, it's, it's right on our doorstep. But it, it gives us um, a, a kind of framework often within which we live. In fact, it gives us a real framework because we have months which are essentially the lunar It makes cycle. you feel a lot smaller. Yeah, and that might not be a bad thing sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And can you go into light pollution in the city and the impacts that it does have on yeah. animals and humans? Yes, that's right. So, you know, if you've got a... The, the problem is that cities have developed uh, with really very little regard to the night sky. That is, that is changing now. But we've got this legacy of really poorly designed lights that um, essentially send 50% of their light up into the night sky. So the first thing that, you, that you're talking about is a waste of energy. Uh, and that, in, it's a colossal waste of energy. That in itself, if you've got uh, um, you know, a, a country or a district which is largely powered by fossil fuels, that's uh, going to contribute to the greenhouse footprint of that uh, area. So that's the first thing. Um, as far as wildlife is concerned, uh, there are many nocturnal species that are thrown completely out of whack by city lights. Uh, they include land animals, you know, um, some of the some of the foraging animals, uh, they find that they their their habitat is is dramatically altered by the fact that they're in a in a region where there is light pollution. But bird life especially is also badly affected. They estimate in the United States that uh, in New York State alone, something like two billion birds a year lose their lives because of the 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 the, the light plume from New York and and other cities. Uh, they they wind up. Uh, basically losing their way. These are migrating birds and they see, you know, they're attracted to the lights. They either crash into buildings or they just orbit around buildings, uh, paralysed by the fact that there's so much light coming from them until they drop dead. Uh, it's a colossal number. Um, and 
perhaps the poster child of the dark sky movement uh, are the, uh, the, the the loggerhead turtle hatchlings, which they pop out of their shells on a beach somewhere and look for the line of surf, which is where they've got a head. But what they find is often a line of streetlights, and that um, you know it confuses them completely. Mm. Uh, so that that's um, there, there are actually specialists here in Australia who are researching that problem uh, with some really interesting results. We'll be back with our conversation with Fred Watson just after this. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. So don't wait. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. We're back with our conversation with Fred Watson. I found it really interesting when I was having a chat to Lisa Harvey-Smith maybe a few months ago and she talked about the space or space as a type of wilderness and then I was thinking about, um, you know, the term light pollution, pollution, wilderness. It's like the movement and the dark sky movement is kind of a conservation movement in a way. Oh, way In the terminology it's using. That's right, yes. I mean... um, uh, I've been known in the past to, reta- to refer to the night sky as the greater wilderness, which it is. You know, it's the wilderness beyond. Um, what, I, what I didn't get to in your question there was the effect on human life of light pollution. Uh, we, we know now that um, because we live in a 24-7 world, uh, a lot of people have to work unusual hours. My son is one of them. He's a nurse, so he does shift work at night. Uh, and we now know that certain types of lighting are very detrimental to human health. This is not light pollution as such, but it's lighting that is not really geared towards uh, protecting our well-being. And that typically is lighting that has a very strong blue component, blue-rich lighting, we call it, because blue is the colour that our, you know, the ganglion cells in front of our retinas are sensitive to, uh, and, and blue light on those things immediately shuts down melatonin uh, secretion, uh, which spoils your, your, your circadian rhythms completely. So in terms of indoor lighting, there are issues as well. Blue light's also bad for outdoor lighting because blue light actually scatters through the atmosphere much more readily uh, than than light of a warmer colour. Uh, um, you know, by warmer, I mean something more orange rather than the, a light with a very high blue content. So blue Blue rich light is bad for light pollution. It 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 basically improves, it increases the light pollution of a city. Mm. And I want to go into uh, what you, what you just mentioned about warmer lights and um, things like that because I think I read that after looking at the impact of lighting on human health, I think it was the French government actually brought in laws that said, yep. "Hold on, this is actually how warm the lights need to be." What do you think it would take for Australia to make those kind of moves? Well, it's happening. Um, and um, I, had, I was in a meeting last week, along with Marnie and some other lighting specialists, with the uh, the street lighting uh, agency for, certainly for northwestern New South Wales and probably other parts of New South Wales as well. And this is exactly what we we're talking about. So um, we, we specify the colour of light in something called colour temperature. It's a fairly crude measure, but it's uh, what what it is. It's actually the temperature of an of a, a what we call a black body, which is imagine a lump of iron, and you heat it to that temperature. That is the colour that it would be. 
and we measure it in degrees Kelvin, which are from absolute zero. So, um, you know, a, a white hot piece of iron uh, would be at a temperature of maybe, uh, you know, three or 4,000 degrees Kelvin. Uh, and we, so that's what we measure, we call the colour temperature. And the colour temperature of daylight is about 5,000 Kelvin. It's quite blue rich um, because of the scattering effect of blue light, um, uh, on, on the atmosphere scattering blue light. Um, we know, though, if you want artificial light at night, uh, a better colour temperature is 3,000, which is a warm a warm colour. And 3,000 is the limit that the French have now imposed on all their street lighting. So if you go above that, you can't do it in France now. Um, 4,000 degrees Kelvin, that's a much whiter, uh, more intense light. Until relatively recently, um, that was the preferred fitting for street lights. These are LEDs, light-emitting diodes. And the reason for that is that uh, those... Um, high colour temperature lights ran at a higher efficiency so you got more bang for your buck you got more light out per was that an environmental issue as well People well wanting to use light saving lights um energy Power saving energy yeah, saving yeah, yeah. lights that's um, uh, yes to some extent that's right it's more that uh local councils recognize the bottom line it's a hip pocket thing as well because you know if you've got high intent higher energy lights then it's they're cheaper to run um but that's changed. So the 3,000 Kelvin lights that the French are mandating now uh, are virtually as energy efficient as the, as the really high, high blue content lights. And so I think there will be a movement towards these warmer colours, which are actually much better for health. Um, th there is one slight, slight side issue here, and that is uh, colour recognition. There's a, something called a colour rec uh, index, I think it is, that... That, that's how good a particular colour is uh, at giving you, um, you know, a sense of colour, which might be important, you know, for accident reporting or whatever. You need to see the colours of things. Um, so that was another argument for high intensity or high colour temperature lights. But I think, once again, that's, that's being relaxed a bit. We can demonstrate that 3000 Kelvin lights actually have as good colour recognition as the, as the higher colour temperature ones. This is all terribly technical. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, it's the way a lighting engineers think and the way they talk and, and really the way the, the, the lighting industry is going. So in your role as Australia's astronomer at large, and actually before I go into my question, let, let's just discuss that role. How, how did that come about? Oh, um, because uh, I was astronomer in charge of the Australian Astronomical Observatory, uh, but the management of the observatory changed. It now is operated through the university sector. Uh, I, however, remained with the government department that ran it, which is the Department of Industry, Innovation and Science, uh, in, a, in an advocacy and outreach role for science outreach generally, but it, of course it also in includes dark skies and, and awareness of um, light pollution. But, um, yeah, there was a conversation that said something like, <clears throat> well, what are we going to call you? Well, if we called you the astronomer at large, we'd only have to change four letters on your office door from astronomer in charge. And so... Uh, we all laughed and fell about, you know, in mirth uh, <clears throat> and said things like, a police have warned that there is an astronomer at large. <laughs> Don't approach them. Um, but it turned out that our minister very much liked the idea. And so um, I became Australia's first astronomer at large. Yeah. And what are some of the challenges you face as Australia's astronomer at large when we have people, more people living in urban environments, more people impacted by light pollution, not seeing 
what they could be seeing. What what are some of the challenges that you face as someone who advocates for night skies? Do you know, um, it's pretty easy to get people uh, excited and inspired by the night sky, even in the urban environments that we live in, <clears throat> because everybody's interested in the broader picture. Um, the fact that they see the universe as holding secrets uh, 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 in regard to our origin and perhaps our ultimate destiny. These are all things that excite people and interest them. And so there is, a, there is a definitely a readiness among the population in general to go outside and find a dark sky place and have a look. And so one of the things that I try and do is tell them where they can do that, whether it's in a, in a, with an astronomical society or in a dark sky place, dark sky park. Um, there is, I think, a great hunger within Australia to know about these things. And that, of course, it makes my job very easy indeed. Mm. And it, say, for example, um, someone like me, if I came up to you and said, Fred, I'm really, really keen on space. I want to know more about it. I want to be able to observe it more. I live in inner West Sydney. What would you say I do? <laughs> well, a lot depends on... Asking for a friend. <laughs> how, ...how you want to deal with it. You know, it's um, asking for a friend. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it, it's, it's actually a lot of people are in exactly that situation. Um, one thing I always suggest is to make contact with an astronomical society, not necessarily join them, but maybe go along to one of their open nights. And there are many, in most of the big cities in Australia, they have astronomical societies that often have their own observatories and they hold pretty regular open nights, um, sky, sometimes star parties or sky watching, things of that sort. Uh, go along there. In Sydney, you can, of course, go to Sydney Observatory as well, which has regular observing sessions. And you, and you can talk to people there and find out you know, what it is that excites them. You can have a look through telescopes uh, in the company of people who know and love the sky and know their way around the sky. <clears throat> and then you can take it from there. Um, you know, whether you just want to be an armchair astronomer and uh, look at things online, you can do a lot of citizen science actually online now uh, from your armchair that contributes directly to uh, to astronomy. Things like the Galaxy Zoo, uh, SETI at Home is another one. These are all projects that people can get involved with uh, that, that actually allowed them to contribute re really to, to a proper science. Uh, and then if you do want to find yourself a telescope, then you can do it very cheaply or you can do it very expensively. <laughs> and I um, was astonished, uh, I guess, uh, only a few days ago to have the opportunity to check out an absolutely new type of telescope, which mixes normal optical, you know, the normal lenses and mirrors that you, you do, you have with a telescope with um, electronic detectors. And this is a telescope that actually lets you see very faint objects, uh, galaxies and nebulae, things that are really at the very low level of vision uh, in, a, in a, an urban environment because the electronics will subtract the sky background oh, wow. and reveal uh, the actually the colours in some of these uh, these objects. It'll cost you three thousand dollars, but <laughs> uh, it, it is it's a little uh, bit out of my budget. Yeah, mine too. I can tell you, but it, it's an extraordinary development, and I think this will contribute a lot to people's uh, awareness of what the night sky has to offer. It's just another, um, a, you know, another part of the arsenal of equipment that we have at our disposal to, to look at the night sky. And when you are communicating with people who live in urban environments who don't have the same or, or the initial same passion that you do for space, what's a particular topic that you think draws them in the most? So um, I do a lot of talks to schools and to 
interest groups and as well as you know the general public um, and it the kind of things that really engages people uh, are studies of the solar system <laughs> sorry about the cat <laughs> um, because we now have um, spacecraft that are exploring the solar system and showing us things that we just never realized about the planets particularly Saturn Mars and planets that have had orbiting spacecraft all that switches people on and and al along with the quest for life because we we now live in an era where there's a there's a, a science known as astrobiology which is not actually necessarily about looking for life in space it's about studying the origins of life and the kinds of environments that life might um, emerge in and <clears throat> astrobiology really engages people because it leads directly to the question of whether we're alone or not mm -hmm. uh, in terms of you know other other um, uh, 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 other species out there uh, and and also the you know the big questions the big picture the origin of the universe the the big bang the um, event in which we think the universe was created 13.8 billion years ago uh, that's the sort of thing that engages people too mm. and was that the kind of thing that engaged you in space when you first got involved with or you know developed your passion for space like do you ever go back to what drew you in and try to use that on other people yep i do <laughs> um because uh look i i grew up in an era where things were very different from what they are now. There had recently been a world war uh, fought on the basis of science and technology. Everybody thought there was going to be another one, so science was very much the flavour of the month. Um, you studied science at school. It was just the normal thing. Um, I got passionate about astronomy then. It was a time... Uh, you know, when um, space studies were advancing, the first Earth satellite was launched in 1957. I remember that quite clearly. Um, uh, so all of that was was engaging, not just me, but all of my peers. Uh, but um, they grew up and did sensible things like became doctors and, and engineers <laughs> and architects and things like that. And I just got kept this fascination with the sky um, and did use a small telescope, which um, I actually borrowed from one of my teachers. He was an astronomy nut. Um, and what drew me in was looking at the moon. There's nothing quite like looking through a telescope at the moon for the first time. And you see this world that's got mountains and craters and another an, worldliness that is really very difficult to put into words. I feel like now you have to tell us how you celebrated the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. Um, by doing many, many radio interviews and talks <laughs> and uh, TV things. And um, actually I did a... Uh, a dinner under the under the moon with uh, at Questacon. Oh my god! Uh, the big moon. Yeah, they, yeah, they've got a, a seven meter diameter moon there, and they had a dinner. And I and a colleague of mine from the National Measurement Institute waxed lyrical about the moon and Apollo and all the rest of it. We had a great time. <laughs> and I wanted to go back to um, the, what we were talking about: um, urban night skies connecting more people. I think one of the things that gets people excited is being able to contribute to. Uh, what I mentioned about, you know, a conservation issue. So how can people help light pollution on an individual level? Yes, the, um, the, they can be aware of it, first of all. And actually, uh, there's a, this comes with a government health warning because when you start looking at what you know to be good and bad light fittings, particularly in street lighting and things like that, you can't help yourself. Everywhere you go, you think, oh, God, that's a terrible lamp there. It's beaming light into the sky. Uh, you suddenly become, you know, very engaged with, uh, with your environment. Uh, but uh, the, so when you're doing things in your own property, your own homes, 
<coughs> excuse me, keep getting this frog in my throat. I apologise for that. Uh, it's a light polluted frog. Um, when you, you know, when you, when you're putting a backyard light in or something like that, be aware of the fact that. Um, there are good and bad ways of doing that and the good ways are the ones that keep the light direct light always below the horizontal plane rather than spreading it upwards into the sky a lot of people light up their backyards with lights that are tilted up so that the beam goes right to the back of the yard yeah i noticed that when you walk past someone's house and a spotlight goes on it just covers the whole road yeah that's right necessary well not only is it unnecessary uh it also contravenes uh a, a a a Australian standard called AS4282, which is Write about... Write that down, folks. <laughs> which is about obtrusive lighting, and that's what it is. You know, that's something called light trespass. What you're doing is you, your light is trespassing onto somebody I else's property. I have never heard that term, yeah. light trespassing. Yeah, so... Um, and and there there is a standard that essentially... Standards don't prohibit things, but they say you shouldn't use that. And if it came to a, a legal case, the standard would be upheld... Uh, yeah. yeah, so light trespass is it's one of the, you know, one of the ills of, of uh, lighting, as is glare. Um, that, you know, the other thing that often happens with those backyard lights is they're tilted up to light up the back fence. And that means the person on the other side of the back fence has got this blazing light in their face. Uh, that is very detrimental as well, not just to health, <clears throat> but also to safety, because... Um, you find that, uh, you know, intense lights like that create shadows that are the perfect places for crooks and miscreants to hide. Um, so good lighting isn't necessarily bright or always about, you know, lighting places. Uh, it's about doing things sensibly. And another thing I've been really curious about is obviously if you live in an urban area, you don't have you don't have to wait for space to come to you. You can go to space. I mean... Actually, you can't go to space, but you can experience the night sky in different ways. So when you mentioned the Warren Bungles, people can obviously travel there and um, whatnot. And I've noticed recently that a lot of different travel companies are promoting dark sky tours and dark sky tourism. Can you explain where that comes from, that whole dark sky tourism? And is it picking up now? How long has that been around? Dark sky tourism is is a relatively recent phenomenon. And it comes about because people do want to experience what a proper dark sky looks like. Often they've got a passing interest, not maybe a passionate interest, but a passing interest in astronomy and trying to see the planets through small telescopes and things like that. So a good dark sky tour would have that facility. It would have somebody who could guide people around the stars and show them what, what's in the sky. Um, uh, and it would have telescopes so that they can have a look in more detail about it. There are also more specialised ones um, that do... Um, fit the bill of dark sky tours, but are going to places like the northern uh, region of Scandinavia to see the, the aurora borealis, the northern lights, or actually southern Tasmania to see the aurora australis, the southern the southern lights, because those are phenomena that are, um, you know, you can actually see them if they're bright enough in light polluted conditions. I've seen uh, the northern lights from the centre of Reykjavik, right in the middle of the town, which is not good for light pollution. Uh, and yet you can see the northern lights still. But it, but it's far better if you're viewing that in a dark sky. And so, you know, that feeds directly into dark sky tourism of a rather specialist kind. One thing I feel like I've always dreamed of being is a national parks ranger. And when I, um, I read about the Australian Geographic Expedition to Sliding Springs soon, and they had this title for 
the ranger that took people around as Night Sky Ranger. Yeah, this right. excited me so much. Can you please explain what is a Night Sky Ranger? Well, I think the person you think, I know her quite well. Uh, the person you're thinking of is basically what I've just described, somebody who knows and loves the sky, uh, has a very, very uh, good knowledge of the sky and, and access to small telescopes as well. So it, it, it's um, that that's a fantastic thing to be doing, to, to, to be... Um, you know, helping people to understand the night sky and to and to get used to it. All right. Well, thank you so much for speaking to me today, Fred. It's a great pleasure. Thanks, Angela. And as Fred mentioned before, if you'd like to find out more about the experts and the dark sky movement in Australia, you can visit AustralasianDarkSkyAlliance.org. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia with Fred Watson. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find a special subscription offer. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening. Until next time.